0: Hello and welcome to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. I'm your host, Jason Harper. This podcast is brought to you by the ABA section of dispute resolution to increase the avenues where we can connect. Today I'm speaking with Diana Cruz, discussing the practice of discovery referees, also known as special masters. Diana gives listeners an overview of the practice and discusses the values and skills one should have as a practitioner. Diana Cruz is a full-time mediator, arbitrator, and discovery referee. Dina has successfully mm-hmm. resolved multimillion-dollar cases globally, and her practice focuses on a wide variety of commercial disputes, including IP infringement, biotech and pharmaceuticals, licensing, data breach security, cybersecurity, telecommunications, and satellite technology. Diana has earned a reputation for being thoroughly prepared and is known for coming up with creative solutions. Her direct and persistent approach is balanced by her warm and outgoing personality, which allows her to connect with the parties and move settlement discussions forward. Diana is also on the panel for Judicate West, one of California's leading providers of private dispute resolution services with an exclusive roster of highly sought after neutrals.
1: Next Level Mediation Software is a mediator's best tool for advancing their online dispute resolution practice. It takes into account the psychological attitudes of the disputing parties and helps mediators find the key priorities to negotiate. Based on decision science and an easy-to-use interface, the Next Level Mediation Platform can handle the most complex disputes. Register today at nextlevelmediation.com for your complimentary 30-day trial of the subscription service and enter the code A, B, A, discount, 20 for a 20% discount.
0: Diana, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Jason, for having me. I'm really excited to talk about everybody's least favorite subject discovery.
0: I hear that. I hear that. Well, I always like to start off with hearing people's journey. So tell us a little bit about your career path and how you got to where you are today.
1: Certainly. Well, I actually started out as a paralegal before I was a partner in a big firm in New York City. I still remember uh, the senior partner secretary coming up to me with a glum face when I told her that uh, that I was going up to uh, out to law school, being like, "Oh, Diana, how could you make this mistake?" But I started in discovery there uh, as a 20 something year old in uh, in college and then went to law school. And I summered at Morrison Forrester in San Francisco and in Palo Alto. And again, right as a young associate and summer associate dove right into all of the discovery work. I also volunteered part-time um, for the San Francisco Superior Court as a judge pro tem hearing discovery matters. And I thought it was a great way to volunteer and give back. Uh, because most people really do not care for discovery. A lot of people get into discovery disputes in all sorts of cases. And the courts, uh, even back then, were really backed up with hearing these motions. And so they were looking for people with expertise in discovery to come and help them issue reports and recommendations in the complex and civil divisions um, so that their judges could focus on the trials uh, and the summary judgment motions and the merits of the cases. So I uh, I spent the vast majority of my career at MoFo uh, working as a litigator. I made partner uh, at some point in that path and, uh, and was really, really happy there, frankly. Um, and I was appointed to the bench in 2019, I believe. And uh, I went from practicing kind of these huge commercial cases, patent litigations, uh, to presiding over the restraining order calendar. So it was definitely quite a <laughs> 180. Um, a lot of unrepresented litigants, uh, a lot of people with very serious uh, life issues and um, needing very quick results. I, again, on that court, I volunteered to hear discovery motions because a lot of people sort of consider it like the black jelly bean in the bag. They don't want it. Um and they really uh, are, are perplexed as to why people get into all these disputes, uh, even though, of course, that's just sort of part of the process, as we all know. And so I volunteered, actually, uh, to help out with discovery motions uh, when I was on the bench, too. And then my career path took a very unexpected right turn um, because the pandemic hit. I had three little kids, all of whom were immediately ejected out of their public schools. And the discussion went pretty fast with my husband and I as to who was going to (laughs) retire and take care of them. So I got uh, the short stick or the long stick, depending on how you look at it. And I ended up joining a lot of other judicial officers that were retiring at the same time um, and uh, joining the ADR world because a lot of them were, you know, really excited. Hey, look at this flexible atmosphere where you can do some of the same things that you enjoy, you know, as a commissioner and a judicial officer, but you can do it on your own schedule. And I think that is one thing that I got to tell you, I am the most grateful for in the ADR space, because when I was working as a paralegal, I had zero control over my schedule. When I was a partner, uh, I had basically zero control over my schedule, although a little more. um, But you know, you're at the whim of your client. And then on the bench, there's very little flexibility too, because you need to be sitting in that seat every day at 830 um, until five o'clock. And there you are, right? And so this is a job like an like no other that I've ever had in that respect. And I really appreciate it because it gives me some space to volunteer and give back. Um, And it also gives me some space to just sort of enjoy life and be with the kids. And so while uh, I wouldn't have bet that I would have ended up here, I'm really happy that I've ended up here. And my discovery reference practice is part of my practice. And I keep grabbing for that black jelly bean every time because- I feel like I'm one of the very few uh, practitioners who has been in kind of the minefields of discovery throughout her entire career and still enjoys it and loves it. Um, And I bring that enthusiasm, I think, um, and a lot of experience in terms of kind of creative ways to get around problems to the table um, when I'm working with parties.
0: Well, I think that's fantastic, and 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 much like the black jelly bean, uh, discovery referee is an acquired taste. And so, when we talk about um, your your expertise and your experience in and voluntarily going into the discovery aspect, you're the perfect person to ask. So, please tell us what is a discovery referee or a special master? How do you define it?
1: Yeah, well, most people uh, consider a discovery referee to be uh, more of the adjudicative type. So that's somebody who basically is appointed by the court or stipulated by the parties. And the primary purpose of that individual is to make decisions regarding discovery disputes when the meet and confer process has failed and the normal sort of way to go about discovery uh, has failed. So it depends on your level of authority that's given to you by the court or by the stipulation. But most of the time, discovery referees will issue a report or a recommendation to your judge. And then the judge can either overrule that or keep that recommendation and make the final decision. Sometimes, though, actually discovery referees are given the authority to have binding decisions. So they're unreviewable uh, by the court, be it either the, a stipulation or the judge giving you that authority. There's also two other types of uh, purposes that discovery referees or special masters serve. One of the other really common ones is kind of the meet and confer discovery referee. That's the person who's just like a mediator. And Jason, I know you do a lot of mediation. So they listen to both sides and they, and they just try to come up with a good compromise solution. Um, And in fact, even when I'm appointed Um, as a a discovery judge, right, that type of um, special master, I really try uh, when I'm hearing a motion to propose various solutions to the parties. And it's incredible how many times uh, they take me up on those solutions because they end up striking a good balance uh, between getting the, the propounding party what they need And the responding party not having to go and give them everything and search for everything, but really that narrow set of documents, right? Um, And a lot of times when a discovery referee is appointed, People come in real hot uh, and they come in real angry because that normal process has failed them. And so a good discovery referee is really going to start laying the groundwork for that meet and confer process to go back to normal, to where you really can reach agreements with the other side, because that saves all the time and expense of fighting it out, right? Um, Writing the motion and the delay, frankly, right? So that's another function that a discovery referee serves. And a lot of uh, referees will refer to themselves as kind of like IDC negotiators. There's like the informal discovery conference that a lot of court systems in California have. And so they'll offer that as a service. Hey, do you want me to be around during your meet and confer and I can help you work out a deal? Or if not, you know, then I've got a good background of what you're finding about The last way that people refer to discovery referees is sort of uh, in the sanctions or special master or investigatory category. These are much, much more rare. So a lot of times these will be a referral from a federal judge and it will be usually in the regulatory space. And they'll be looking to have this referee or special master take a look at something, like a specific question, like, uh, did they know about this issue and then lie to the SEC about it? Or... You know, were they, you know, engaging in these false advertising practices? And the goal of this type of referee, as the name implies, is uh, basically to just do fact finding and then to make a recommendation or issue a kind of report on what happened. Um, That authority is usually very, very limited and very, very specialized. Uh, So those are much, much more rare in the appointment process
0: well i definitely want to talk about you know some cases that uh, that that you've had and and that you've heard of that uh, that go into that investigative aspect because i think that's a very 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 interesting uh area of the field however one of the things that I wanted to ask you was, you know, what are some of the skills necessary for this area of practice? I mean, you yourself have practiced in a number of very specialized fields. I mean, we're talking IP infringement, biotech and pharmaceuticals, uh, data breach and cybersecurity. So is that level of subject matter expertise necessary to be that special master or discovery referee? Or um, you also talked about the, the mediative approach which has its own set of skills to be sure. However, it's uh, completely different, completely different uh, muscles you're exercising. So uh, tell me a little bit about that aspect. Is the subject matter expertise, how important is that in this particular field?
1: I think it's, in most cases, I think it's not as important. There are obviously some exceptions where having like a patent infringement background or a trade secret background or an understanding of cybersecurity where it is really important, right? But in the vast majority of cases, I think the most important skill to bring to the table is just a lot of experience and discovery disputes, right? So you want somebody who's played uh, in the snow quite a bit, <laughs> been in those uh, snowball fights where you're talking about, you know, really... Um, detailed issues of privilege or where you're really evaluating how much burden is going to go in to this electronic discovery production and what are the word you know searches that we can use to narrow it so that it's effective for both parties and having a broad base in discovery Uh, motions in general is really invaluable here. Because as we all know, every fight uh, has its own unique snowflakes. Uh, (laughs) But once you've played in the snow quite a bit, you do bring a lot to the table in terms of helping them kind of get at what they want. And it's interesting because most people see uh, Discovery as a zero-sum game. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And this kind of brings me to my second skill, which I think is important, is that mediation negotiation uh, muscle that you were talking about. I think in many instances, um, the the the. Pre- pounding party doesn't want a million documents, right? So this is a very, very common fight. Oh, they're asking me for everything, Your Honor. Uh, They want me to produce the entire company. Well, of course they don't uh, want you to produce the entire company's documents, because if you did, then they'd have to pay to review millions and millions of documents. What they really want is a very small category of documents, which goes to X, Y, or Z. So having the parties kind of hone in on that and asking them targeted questions to get it exactly what they want, and then turning to the other side and asking them about how their systems work and, uh, and, and really narrowing in on that can kind of basically lay a landscape to have them both work with one another in an effective way. I'll tell you one thing that's also a very, very important skill to have, in my opinion, and that is a really strong knowledge of the way e-discovery tools work. So I worked with a lot of different platforms and a lot of different types of data when I was an attorney at MoFo. And knowing kind of the special ways to search for texts or the special ways to call out privileged documents can save the parties an immense amount of money. And technology has really advanced to where, you know, you don't need to spend a million dollars searching for all of these things. The system can basically automatically exclude all these irrelevant uh, documents or but basically narrow you in on these very, very relevant ones. I uh, ended up marrying the CTO of a large e-discovery company And he, you know, he is constantly teaching me about new tools that they've got basically so that parties can harness the power of technology and not do the hard work themselves. Uh, They can just let the, the system do it for them. There's definitely some trust and some error, right? Built into that. Um, but frankly, it works very, very well the vast majority of times. And so I think that's another really important skill to bring to the table, because if you've got that, you can end up saving the parties a lot of money and teaching them new tricks too that they can utilize in other cases.
0: Well, and I think you bring up a very, you know, you bring up a lot of great points there, but really the ability to get people to push past their their posturing, so to speak, and to really get to that narrow focus of what it is that they really want uh, from an informational standpoint. But then the other thing that you talked about was, hey, spending that time in the snow and and really building up that experience level. And so, you know, in talking through your journey, you mentioned the fact that you were volunteering to, to enter into the discovery space. What was it that drew you to it specifically?
1: Well, a few things. I think that uh, there's a there's a lot of pain points around it, right? And so study after study shows that the vast majority of anybody's litigation budget, especially in the high stakes cases, are spent in the discovery, you know, arena. And I think that it doesn't necessarily, again, have to be that way, right? Um, there's ways where you can save a lot of money for your clients and, and a lot of time and headache, if you do it right. But how many times have you ever seen an e-discovery class on the law school roster, right? It, it's very rare. And it's one of those really uh, unusual things where I'm always talking about how high schools should teach financial education, right? How to balance a checkbook and how to look at credit card statements and, and you know, read their mortgage you know, uh, reports before they sign on the bottom line. And it's one of the failings, I think, of our uh, legal education system that we don't have more e-discovery classes because a lot of young, because most of the time, young attorneys are tasked with discovery, right? Um, And you don't really have a good toolbox to bring to the table. You kind of learn as you go. And if you as a discovery referee can bring that, you know, for them and help educate them, you can give back an immense amount. And so I actually started volunteering um, when I was talking with the old presiding judge, this wonderful, wonderful lady who's now um, on the court of appeal. She was the first African-American woman to be appointed to the California court of appeal. And just a wonderful lady about the backlog that they had, right, in these discovery motions. And what happens when there's a backlog in discovery motions? That means you don't, first of all, you don't get the information if you're the moving party. And on the other side, you're kind of in this like, you know, nasty space where it's like, oh man, am I gonna have to produce this? Am I not gonna have to produce this? If I keep waiting, how much more is it gonna take? And then if I get hit with an order to produce it right at the end, now I'm scrambling on discovery instead of focusing on the merits of my case. And so it just seemed like a really wonderful way Um, to kind of help out in the court system. And I've got to say, now more than ever, especially, uh, there's a huge backlog with uh, the COVID delays in our civil courts around the country, in both federal and state courts. And Uh, Unfortunately, discovery motions are not at the top of everybody's to-do list, right? And so you can end up really feeling that delay and that delay is gonna end up costing you a lot of times more money. Um, And so I strongly encourage any associates who love discovery like I do to kind of take a look at the judge pro tem areas uh, in, in their local superior courts because the court needs good people to help out, right? Uh, and it's a wonderful way to 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 help litigants and to help the court with their docket.
0: You're absolutely right. That's providing a huge benefit, you know, just to clear the docket. And you mentioned, you know, during COVID, how how backed up everything was, and and you know, I'm sure, you know, you came in very handy. <laughs> <laughs> at that particular point in time. but I want to go <laughs> I want to go back to uh, to something that you brought up. You know we talked about the different types uh, of special masters and discovery referees. you, know, you talked about the mediative uh, approach, which I absolutely appreciate. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about invest, that investigative approach uh, that you that you brought up uh, initially. I want to go back to that and some maybe some examples as far as what that what that looks like.
1: Yeah. So one of the one of the main ways that I've been appointed previously is basically to with an investigative referee to review alleged non-compliance with discovery orders, right? Um so the judge will order you to produce X Y and Z and they'll come back and they'll say and I'm I'm thinking of one case that you know I worked on and we'll just talk about it in broad brushes um but you know, they'll come back and say, well, we don't have any of those. We looked and we don't have any of those documents, you know, and the other side will says, well, I know you do because you produce some of them. (laughs) So, and I can see emails where it's right. Like there's these eight people having these conversations and, you know, I only have files from this one person, not the other seven. And so there's some telltale signs that, in certain circumstances where things may have happened or is sometimes even more documents were destroyed. And so a referee will go in and will take a look at that and basically make a recommendation on sanctions uh, or not. Sometimes the court will have you work with a forensics consultant. So somebody who's actually looking at the hard drives and providing reports um, for you to review as well. And they're complicated issues. Um, and of course, even when it turns out that you've missed something, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's in bad faith. So let me give you an example of something that just happened this morning. One of my kids was like, I need the Cheerios. My husband goes and looks. Yeah, there's no Cheerios. Yeah, I can hear this all happening upstairs. Oh, there's Cheerios. Get them. No, no, no. I've looked. I now I've looked twice, right? I go in there and look they're right there, <laughs> right in the middle of the show. Now, listen, he's got a lot of redeeming qualities. All right. And was, was he in bad faith saying that, that, that it didn't exist? No. Did he look? He looked twice. He was looking hard and he had every incentive to look hard. Right. Right. And so, there's a lot of considerations that goes into this work beyond just do they exist or don't they? Did you really comply, or didn't you? You know, um, some other very difficult situations that I uh, have uh, been involved in. There's also the unfortunate situation of when you have a prior firm working, and then you know the relationship falls apart between the client and the prior firm perhaps because it didn't go so well in certain discovery aspects. And then the new firm picks it up and they're kind of left cleaning up the mess. <laughs> and that's a very hard place for everybody to be. Because of course, as the new firm, you know, it doesn't really help you that much. If you say, well, it was the last firm that messed it up <laughs> because it's your client, right? Um that didn't say, for example, suspend their auto destruction, uh, you know, policy, and now all of these documents are just gone. And so that is a, another investigative thing that some referees, including myself, have been involved in and um, can be, you know, very stressful for everybody. And it doesn't, sometimes they're, they're bad actors and sometimes they're really good actors who are trying their best, but just didn't know how to do it or, you know, miss the boat um, in terms of turning this on or this off or searching there.
0: Well, I will say this. Uh, eventually, uh, the ABA is going to do a best of the resolutions podcast episodes and the Cheerios illustration is absolutely going to make it in there. Thank you so much for that. That was that was absolutely fantastic. Um, and and Danny been just great this entire time. The last question that I want to ask is, what advice would you give to someone that is entering this particular area of the uh, of the ADR field?
1: Well, number one is try it out, right? Because I think discovery gets a bad rap, and especially when we've been in it as litigators and been super stressed out about it, and oh my gosh, it's so tedious, but I think when you uh, transition to the neutral side, um, it it really goes into a new space, and so give it a shot, because you never know, you might end up loving it Um, (laughs) after all. And I would also say, so just take an appointment or two, uh, because that um, can be a wonderful way for you really to decide, is this something right for me or is it not? I think the other um, piece of advice that I'd give people is to listen really carefully to the parties. A lot of discovery disputes can turn out to be uh, what I call nothing burgers. So somebody can kind of chase right these documents and it turns out again they just don't exist. <laughs> and so but the other side hasn't really told you that clearly yet and you can really help the parties get there. Um so everybody knows, hey, we're wasting our time looking down this hole. Let's go look down another one. And if you don't listen to the parties carefully and ask the right questions, you can miss something like that. And you can order production for example of something that <laughs> isn't there, right? and end up accidentally you know, not speeding up the process. Because one of the things I try to do as a referee is to make it as efficient as possible. And when you don't listen to the parties and you don't kind of help them both meet their needs, uh, it, it defeats that purpose. And so having a really good listening um, set of skills is another important part, I think, uh, and a great way to be successful in this space. Last but not least, I would also say, you know, these discovery cases can be really contentious. People generally, as I mentioned, come in as an involuntary appointment, (laughs) which means, and let's be honest, a lot of them come in because the judge also is very frustrated (laughs) (laughs) And is like this is 20 motions I can't deal with this. it's too much, and so you end up in front of a referee, and so you start out in a really sometimes with with a lot of hostility, and so if you can kind of be a calming force in that and just get them back to where they need to be, you uh, will get some repeat business in this field, which is what everybody strives for. Um, so that's my only other advice on getting started in this field. And I always say this, but I'll say this uh, for the recording too. If anybody ever needs uh, advice about this topic or wants to talk about building um, their ADR uh, practice in this space, I'd love to talk to you. Um, so feel free to reach out to Man, I'm easily Googleable.
0: Fantastic, and and this has been amazing. Thank you so much, Diana, for for your time and and telling us about uh, discovery referees uh, and or special masters. Uh, so we greatly appreciate it. And this has been Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. Take it easy.